Well, please, I'd encourage you to have your Bible open in Romans chapter 15 as we seek to learn together from Paul's ministry. Paul is drawing ever closer to concluding this letter. Uh, The main section of teaching in many ways now is over. And it's almost like a preacher having come to the end of his notes and just closing over his notes, closing over his Bible, looking into the congregation and just bringing some final personal heartfelt remarks and comments before he finishes. Well, this wasn't in my script, but I must say this just before I go. But being the Apostle Paul, what he has to say still nevertheless is loaded with helpful instruction and insight because, of course, this part of the letter is as much inspired by God's Spirit as every other part of the letter. And so God is speaking still through his Apostle. So let's listen to what Paul has to say. First of all, he assures us that everything he does is with the aim of building up Christ's church. This is verses 14 to 16. I'm confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The first thing we notice here is that Paul affirms some of the strengths that ought to be seen in any and every local church. The issues we've seen him address with them from the start of uh, uh, chapter 14, that they're not really a word of rebuke to them, that they are much in need of, but rather a word of help and encouragement and counsel with respect to the kinds of issues that all churches will always be grappling with. He wasn't trying to suggest that they were ignorant of these things. He says in verse 15, I've been reminding you. And he writes boldly about certain things because he wants to encourage them to continue to press on in the right way which they do already know. Uh, There's a lot of that needed in preaching, that you continue to press on in the right way in the things you already know. Because you and I, we are prone to want to devise our own way of doing things. Often because of pride. I like to be wise in my own opinion. I think far more of my wisdom than your wisdom. Isn't that in our hearts sometimes? But of course that can lead us up all kinds of blind alleyways. It can lead us into error. No, says the apostle, stick with what you've been taught. Keep to those things that you already know of the truth, as I've been reminding you. Paul knows that the way Christ's church is built up is not by trying to be continually moving on to new things, but remaining faithful in what you've already been taught. Remaining faithful 
in the unchanging truths of the gospel and of God's word. And he commends them in verse 14 for those things which are good to see in any local church. They're full of goodness. Well, that's one of, uh, part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it, that Paul writes in the New Testament, in the life of a Christian, uh, being godly, being Christ-like, being filled with grace. After all, it was Jesus who said, only God is good. So for a Christian or a church to be described as being full of goodness, well, that has to be by growing up in the things of God himself. Godliness in his people and amongst his church. And so to be gracious and merciful and kind and gentle and long-suffering as God is, and firm in the truth as God is. The exercise, the active exercise of graces which make for healthy spiritual life and growth and for a healthy spiritual church full of goodness. They have knowledge, he says, well, here he can only be referring to the knowledge of God's truth, the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of Christ. That's the only kind of knowledge that Paul is interested in, that we should know God and his word and the gospel and Christ. In the Roman church, there is depth and maturity regarding such things. And with all of this well established amongst them, they are in a position to be able to admonish one another. And that is a healthy thing to find in a local church, that, that the believers there are able not only to give admonishment, but they have the heart to receive it as well. It's one thing to give it, but to be on the receiving end, well, what a gracious heart you need to be able to do that and to receive it gladly. So there's a, a really important point uh, that raises itself here. Uh, to what degree are you concerned about one another's spiritual state? Do you speak to one another about such things? Or do you only speak to one another about the things of the world? Or do you only speak to one another about the physical things in life? Do you speak to people about their struggles and difficulties without ever pausing to consider the spiritual realities that can be involved, the, the spiritual lessons that apply, that can be of help to them, the spiritual lessons they can learn, the things that they can grow in through those struggles and difficulties. The manner in which they can, in that situation, display God's goodness and grow in knowledge. Or are you just a gossip who enjoys knowing everyone else's business and there's nothing more to it than that? Paul's concern is for the building up of Christ's church. And at the end of verse 15, he reminds us that the person he is, the ambitions he has, the priorities he lives by, they are all the result of God's grace given to him. The man Paul is, 
as this apostle that we've, we come to know and love through the scriptures, uh, he is the result of God's grace at work in him. We need saving grace. We need saving grace in order that we might ever be saved. We also need serving grace. We need grace to continue to live and grow. We need grace to press on and be faithful. We need saving grace. We need serving grace. Many years ago, I worked with someone whose father was very wealthy. Well, by my standards, he was anyway. They lived in one of those big detached houses in Formby as you go down to the Squirrel Reserve. And for her 21st birthday, he bought her a brand new Mini. That's the car Mini. That's the old original type of Mini. Wow. But imagine if he'd also bought her a lifetime car insurance, a lifetime warranty, and a lifetime supply of petrol. Now, it isn't just a one-off gift, but all that she requires to make full use of that gift from that moment on. That's what God does for you. It's not just a one-off gift, is it? It's not just grace to be saved, as glorious and wonderful as that is, but he also gives the grace to press on, the grace to continue in every sphere of life and service that he may have in store for you. He gives you the whole package. By God's grace, Paul has not only been saved on that Damascus road, but he's been equipped, he's been enabled, he's been transformed, he's been empowered for this work and ministry that God has given him to do. All of that is God's grace too. And God does the same for all believers. Now we're not all called to the same thing as Paul was called to. But we all need that grace that Paul was given, whatever our calling is. Now, of course, Paul's particular calling has been as a minister and apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the Gentile world, preaching, ministering the gospel of God. And the Greek word that Paul uses, which we have as minister, actually is an allusion to the work of a priest in the temple. And so what Paul is trying to picture here is that the Gentiles to whom he preaches and those who actually come to faith, they are as his offering to God. He lifts them before the throne of grace that they, justified and sanctified by Christ, may be his acceptable offering to God. They are the fruit of his service to God. He rejoices in the thought of all of those who've come to saving faith in Christ through his ministry, in eternity, praising the Lord. 
Now, of course, Old, Old Testament sacrifices that the Old Testament priests used to have to deal with, they could only deal with those things that were specified by God and they had to be without spot and blemish. And so Paul also longs to see these believers justified, sanctified, consecrated to God, lives fully transformed by God's grace and power, lives given over to the worship and service of the Lord, that all of this is God's doing, can only be God's doing, all of it the result of God's grace. And, verse 16, the work of the Holy Spirit. God has done this. Uh, and this is the kind of the picture that Paul uses of himself as a minister of Christ. This is my service to God. And all of these saved Gentiles are the fruit of my labours that I offer to the Lord. And note finally in this first section that, that all of this, all of this is the ministry of the gospel. He uses that phrase there in verse, the middle of verse 16, ministering the gospel of God. Now, ministering the gospel of Christ isn't just about evangelizing unbelievers. It isn't just about standing and proclaiming the gospel, although it obviously is that. But the gospel of Christ is more than that for Paul. It's also about the ongoing sanctification of believers, the ongoing growth in grace in those believers as part of the gospel. All of this for Paul is gospel work. All of us continue to live in repentance and faith. All of us continue in that new life which we now have in Christ Jesus. In Him, we continue to stand complete. By Him, you'll be received into everlasting glory. And this is the building up of Christ's church. And this is, this is who Paul is. This is. These are the things that are upon his heart and how they must be on ours as well. And so all of these things that we see Paul talking about here, uh, we're having these big pointers for us. Uh, this is what church is about. This is what it means to be the people of God together. All of these things that Paul is seeking to see and engender and encourage amongst Christian churches are for us today. And so because of all of these things that Paul is saying, because it's all of grace, because it's all of the Holy Spirit, the second thing he points out is that he's boasting only of God's grace and power. From verse 17, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. I won't dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Now back in chapters 3 and 4, Paul says that all boasting has been silenced. But of course what he means there is any boasting in ourselves, any boasting 
about ourselves, any boasting about our own supposed merit, our own supposed achievement. There is nothing in me, there is nothing about me that I could ever boast about. However, Paul is saying, in Christ, in union with Christ, I do now have something to boast about. And that is everything that he has done for me. And not just the Son, but the triune God. He is my boast. In him I will glory. There are many things about me, says Paul in verse 18, which the old me would have boasted about, but none of those things are of Christ. And so I would never dare to mention any of those things. He puts it in the negative sense there. I will not boast of those things if they are only of me and they are not the accomplishment of Christ. I will not boast in things unless they are what Christ has done in me. Putting it in the positive. I will only boast of those things which are of Christ. I will only boast of those things which can be attributed to him so that he alone is exalted so that he alone receives all the glory and the praise and the honour. You've seen, I'm sure, all these lines of people filing past the coffin of the Queen. Imagine Westminster Hall is Paul's life. Right in the centre, there is just one thing on display. Right in the centre, there is just one thing that he would have you see. Just one thing that he would draw your attention to and would invite you to walk by and honour and worship and adore. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has done in his life. It's all of him. He has done it all. And, and that's the only thing I want to draw your attention to, says Paul. And I want to try and draw your attention to nothing else but that. Nothing else but the Saviour. The church is planted these Gentiles turned to Christ in faith and living in obedience. It's all God's doing. Now as an apostle, Paul has been, he's been given special and unique spiritual gifts. Just as Jesus had done, the apostle Paul can heal the sick. Just as Jesus had done, the apostle Paul can even raise the dead. We had one of those stories with our children just the other week. The Apostle Paul has been given the ability to speak in foreign languages that he'd never previously learned, as clever as he was, so that men and women of other nations can hear from his lips the gospel being taught and explained in their own tongue. 
all of these miracles, they act as signs to confirm and to authenticate his ministry, just as they authenticated the true identity of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. And the people would look upon these things as wonders, like when we considered this morning that he was bitten by a viper and it had no impact on his body whatsoever. What a wonder! But these wonders, as they are seen by everybody else, they are intended to make them realize that only God can be at work here. He is the only possible explanation. They are indeed the power of the Spirit of God, as he says there in verse 19. And so it's been by this enabling that he has traveled so widely preaching the gospel of Christ. And Paul there in verse 19, he he talks about from Jerusalem round to Illyricum. Uh, That's his way of referring to all the places he has been. That's kind of Jerusalem, the starting point, and Illyricum, the furthest place he ever got to. Now, as far as I can find out, Illyricum itself isn't mentioned specifically in any of his missionary journeys in the Acts of the Apostles. Illyricum is about 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. That was a long way 2,000 years ago. It's a Roman province. It's northwest of Greece and Macedonia. It's on the Dalmatian coast of what we today know as Croatia, just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. And the only specific reference to that part of the world that I can find is in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, where we read that Titus visited Dalmatia. So it's kind of right on the edge of what we might call the Middle East before you enter into what we would today recognise as mainland Europe with Italy and Spain. And, And Paul is talking about this vast tract of land that he's covered, preaching the gospel. Wherever Paul's gone, his ministry has been one and the same, fully preaching the gospel, he says there at the end of verse 19, fully preaching the gospel. In other words, he's preached the gospel, the whole gospel, and nothing but the gospel. He has no other message than God's salvation in Christ Jesus because there is no other issue or need that men and women have that comes anywhere near as important as this issue and need, that the wages of their sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Oh, men and women need to hear this. If they need to hear anything, they need to hear this that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. Whether you're a resident in Jerusalem, whether you're in Illyricum, or whether you're at any point across those 1,400 miles in between, 
This is the message you need. This is the saviour you need. And this has been Paul's whole life. Of all the topics that you or anyone else may wish to talk about, we need to be talking about this one. Because this one determines where and in what manner they will spend eternity. And so for Paul, thirdly, as we move into verses 20 and 21, he's all about this, to boldly go where no preacher has gone before. To boldly go where no other preacher has gone before. I've made it my aim, he says, to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it's written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. Those who have not heard shall understand. Now we know, of course, Paul did preach to his fellow countrymen. Of course he did. We know that it was his custom every Sabbath day to go into the local synagogue, wherever he was. And most assuredly, uh, Paul, as Jesus used to do, uh, would seek to read the Scriptures. And then from those Old Testament Scriptures point them to Christ. And we've heard already in this letter how Paul laments over how few of his fellow countrymen have turned to Christ. But of the apostles, his was a very particular calling to take the gospel to the Gentile world, to those who've never heard. He was careful not to tread on the toes of other men, not to be seen as muscling in or cashing in on the gospel labours of others. Now he was, of course, as an apostle, entitled to provide spiritual help and guidance to other churches, just as he does to the Romans here, just as he does in all the other letters that we have recorded in the Scriptures, and no doubt many more beside. He has that authority as an apostle to be able to do that. Where necessary to bring rebuke and correction, but also to bring encouragement. But his chief ministry was as a pioneering missionary, taking the gospel where it had never been heard before. Preaching the gospel to the lost and to those who've never heard. Now for us, you know, this must continue to be at the forefront of our thinking and of our praying of course, it doesn't mean that all of us are required to go to the farthest parts of the world. Although perhaps there's someone here this evening, and God does, that requ- does require that of you. Perhaps you don't know it yet, but maybe he does, maybe he will. It's actually the case that most believers are called to stay exactly where they are. And to be a witness right where you are. Because of course, even staying right where you are, you will, in all kinds of ways, still come into contact with people who've never heard, won't you? You'll make new friends at school, at uni, at work. New neighbours 
Either you'll move and become a new neighbour to them, or they'll move and become a new neighbour to you. So many of them, they've never heard. People invited to meetings at church. Those who find us on the internet and simply turn up. Households contacted through door-to-door or through the children's work. And they've never heard. Opportunities for gospel witness on beach missions through open airs and such like. The total stranger who you strike up a conversation with on the bus. And they've never heard. And they're right on your doorstep. They're right where you are. Again and again, we all come face to face with those who've never heard. And it needs to be our aim, like Paul, to share with them the gospel of Christ. For the most part, it doesn't require you to be in full-time ministry. All still have this role to play. But at the same time, we do acknowledge there still are those far-flung places, those far-flung peoples who still have never heard. And some still do need to be ready to give up all that they have here and to pack up their bags and go. And so we should be praying for that too, because that still is needed. Perhaps there's someone here, and God has an illyricum for you, where you must go. Well, Paul concludes at verse 21 for our time this evening, as he quotes from the very end of Isaiah chapter 52. And that's the most poignant moment in Isaiah's prophecy. It's that part where Isaiah is speaking most clearly and directly about the promised Messiah. From verse 7 of Isaiah 52, we read these words. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, with their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I'm fairly confident that was a passage that Saul of Tarsus knew quite well. And now, as Paul the Apostle, wow, what wonderful uh, truth he sees there now that he never saw before. And God now is appointing him to, to do this very thing. And that chapter then concludes with the words quoted in verse 21. To whom he was not announced, they shall see. Those who have not heard shall understand because there will be someone who goes and tells them. And of course then Isaiah goes straight into that famous chapter 53, the man of sorrows who will suffer and die for our sins. 
this fulfilling of Isaiah's prophecy is hugely significant to Paul. To know that he's been something of a trailblazer in bringing about that which had long been promised concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always been in the plans and purposes of God to provide salvation for the whole world and not just Israel. And here is Paul now at the figurehead of this great work. To think that even as God inspired Isaiah to write those words, he also had in view Saul of Tarsus. And I think, of course, there's something of a twinkling in God's eye that he would choose a Pharisee to take the gospel to the Gentile world. We're encouraged to remember that God will so often use the most unlikely candidates to undertake the most unlikely tasks and achieve the most unlikely results in order that we remember that the work is his as are the outcomes, and he alone is to be praised. What a thing it is that through the preaching of the gospel, Christ continues to build his church, continues to establish his church. What a privilege for the likes of you and I to follow in the, in the footsteps of a man like Paul, building up Christ's church, boasting only of God's grace and power ready to find yourself where no Christian has ever spoken of Christ before, to be the first person to tell a man or woman or boy and girl about Jesus. Is there anything greater than that? To tell them of the love that drew salvation's plan, Oh, the love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And can you say this? Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Well, may the Lord be pleased to use each one of us in his royal service. It's still a task unfinished and we must press on.